There comes a day when nobody's phoning you to come, you know, play on their worship team or preach at their webinar, you know, preach at their, their conference or whatnot. Um, and you're not being hailed for your accomplishments, the church you built or the books you wrote. Uh, and it'll be a very, very lonely existence if you predicated your sense of who you are on all of that. What actually will make for a rich old age is that you've gone into this uh, intimacy with, with Christ and you've nurtured that and fostered that all the days of your life. Hey friends, it's Leash and Jason back together again. Jay, how are you doing? I'm doing so good. We're just living life in, what do you call this? Is it quarantine? I don't know if we're in quarantine, but in lockdown here in Vancouver. How are things going in lockdown in Calgary? Yeah, we're calling it lockdown 2.0. Uh, things are still closed. We're still living our good life in our little apartment here in Calgary, but it's just wild. Like you think about all the businesses that are still not open here, gyms, libraries, restaurants. Uh, I'm just, yeah, it's just, I'm floored that we're still in this, but it's, we're, we're getting through. We're doing our best. Yeah. And I was excited earlier, just before we were recording, you're telling me that you guys are launching with some women at Village Church Calgary and online alpha. And I guess that's exciting because we're all in this place. A lot of our listeners are pastors in local churches trying to go, okay, we're still in this, but what does it look like to still launch ministries and not wait till it's over? And I love the innovation and creativity that we're experiencing. I love that you guys are giving it a go as well. Yeah, no, we're really excited. And I think actually now is the most important time to be doing Alpha, especially in this COVID moment, because I think so many people have so many questions, right? They want to know what is life all about? Why am I here? Where do I turn to for hope? Because right now I'm feeling hopeless and I don't know how to walk through this year and uh, and still be okay. And so I think yeah. it's a really cool opportunity. It's so interesting. I hear a lot of conversations around Zoom fatigue and that's real, but I don't think it's a good enough reason to not try to create spaces mm. for connection, whether mm-hmm. it's alpha or small groups or discussion or whatever it might be, people are hungry for community. And I think there is a unique opportunity. Like we ran advertisements on Facebook, just open advertisements on Facebook and had no idea if people would come, but we're finding people who have no connection to the church at all. Like no Christian friends are signing up to be part of Alpha. Not like a crazy amount, but real people. And so we launch ours next week. And it's just one of a number of examples of like ways that we can innovate in this time. And then when this is done and we cannot wait for it to be done, I think there's going to be some things that we take with us that next season, and then some things that maybe there's new imagination, new ideas for how we can serve our city post-lockdown. I love that. Well, today, Jason, it's your guy, Mark Buchanan. He's a former pastor, brilliant writer and communicator, and today he's an associate professor of pastoral theology right here in Calgary, Alberta at Ambrose University and Seminary. Jason, I know this conversation was super important to you. Is there anything specific or anything you want to point out to us before we take a listen in? I love Mark because he is someone who worked out his stuff in the local church context. I started, I found him as an author and was really impacted quite young by uh, one of his books that someone gave to me. And then I discovered when I was like reading his bio that he was a pastor not far from where I grew up. And something just felt really special about that connection that, oh, this wasn't just an author from another country of a big mega church somewhere else, but he was somewhere locally working out in a local city. And I loved our conversation. We talked about a lot of things. He's You'll notice he's very thoughtful and uh, not quick to speak and after the heart of the matter. And I just appreciate it. We were trying to chat about a number of issues. And I know while he was in Duncan, he did some work with the local reserve there and the indigenous people. And that stayed in his heart. So when he moved to Calgary, he continued uh, to engage that community in meaningful ways. And we got to talk about steps towards that because I kind of just confessed to him in this conversation like, Mark, I know this is an important space to move towards and important people to move towards, uh, but naturally, and you know, it's even, I'm a bit shy even admitting it, I just feel unsure what those steps might be, but I think it's such an important conversation. And even though I don't think I'm even handling this conversation perfectly, we've got to have it and I hope we continue to have it and appreciated his thoughts on it that you're going to hear in this interview amongst a lot of other themes we talked about. Yeah, that's huge. No, that's amazing. I can't wait to listen to it. So let's just jump right into your conversation with Mark. Well, Mark, thank you so much for making time to hang out today. I appreciate it a ton, man. Jason, I'm really honored, so thank you, and you're welcome. And uh, I know you as an author and uh, as a pastor who was pastoring in British Columbia, and now you're in Alberta. Give us a little window into your life, uh, some of the things that you and your wife and family are up to this time of life, even in the midst of the pandemic. Right. 
Yeah, I've been seven and a bit years teaching at Ambrose Seminary here in, in southern Alberta and Calgary. And uh, we were actually, my wife and I were on a sabbatical in southern France. And we were supposed to be there for three and a half months when, when the pandemic hit. And so we got hauled back from that. It was a, a pretty... Dis- How far into it were you before they, 12 days, you had to come home? 12 days. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, it was painful. Very painful. And... But um, but we we redeemed the time. I I, uh, I I really enjoy I enjoyed pastoral ministry, and we'll probably talk a bit about that. I was in my, my wife and I were part of uh, part of two different churches over twenty four years. But the seven and a bit years I've been here in the academy have been lovely, hmm. partly because we're at an age and stage of life our kids are grown, where uh, yeah you know if if you don't show up for a month in the job you do, Jason, you know, somebody, somebody's going to notice that. Uh, if I don't show up for a month, nobody does. I mean, if, if it's, if, if classes are on and they don't show up in my classroom, they'd start to get disturbed. So it was a season of life where I wanted a little more flexibility around the, for writing and at, at that point traveling. So we've been doing a lot of that since COVID we've been, I, 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 uh, I built a kayak at the height of the first lockdown, I think my wife, when we got back from France, realized that it would probably be good for my mental health and maybe for our marriage if I sort of went into the garage for several hours every day. And I know most of our listeners tune in for advice about building uh, aquatic crafts. Right. Are you talking wood or fiberglass? Like, uh, give me a it, sense it was of the it was a wood kit, so it's actually uh, the the main uh, wood is is a a mahogany, a very, very thin mahogany ply. And it comes all pre-cut. There's a few little bits you have to do, but it's still painstakingly slow because you're gluing the thing with epoxy. I mean, bit by bit, joint by joint, and then glazing the whole thing. So it was just got me out of the house. It got me out of my slump, having come home from France. But we, we do a lot of... Um, uh, lots of walking. We live right near the Rocky Mountains, and so there's amazing mm. trails. And you can go for two kilometers, or you can go for two hundred. And so we enjoy that. Um, yeah, it's a good season of life right now. My wife's a spiritual director and works mm. with a, a, a range of clients from across Canada and a bit through the states. And so she's often my guru as well, and mm. helping me kind of think through. So my own spiritual journey. Oh, thanks for sharing that. I'd love to chat, come back to Ambrose, because I've got some thoughts or questions. I don't have thoughts. I got questions <laughs> around raising up the next generation yes. of pastors. But we'll see if we get back to Ambrose in your story. I'd like just to go back to like I'd like to hear a bit more about that many years of pastoring. And you said you were in two primary churches. I know you were at New Life in Duncan. Yeah. Um where were you before that? Uh a Baptist church, First Baptist in Vernon for six and a bit years. And that was where mm. I was cutting my teeth. I had no intention. I became a Christ follower when I was early 20s. My wife was 18. We weren't married at the, that time, but we, we came to faith together. How did you come and, to Jesus? What was the... What yeah, was the, uh, reading like, the Bible, my, 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 my brother, my mom had a radical conversion when I was in my late teens. She was very much into Eastern religions and mysticism and looking for something. I wasn't looking for anything but a good time, but she was looking for something to fill some void in Mm. her life. And it was through that quest that she encountered Christ. And and to me, at that point, when I was 17 or so, and she became a Christian, Jesus looked like another Swami to me, just another one of these, uh, you know, these, these gurus that she'd been following from um from from eastern tradition yeah but it really did have a transforming effect on her in a Mm. way that none of the other sort of influences had so that was it caught my interest is all but Mm. i not enough to to explore it Uh, but soon after my brother we'd always been fairly close came to faith and that was a little more more disturbing than than intriguing to me. I just felt like I lost a really good friend. (laughs) 
Uh, and then I was living with a girl soon after that, and he bought both my, myself and this woman a um, Bible for Christmas, which I thought was a complete waste of <laughs> money and a gift. And I put it, I was annoyed, and I put it in a shelf and, and uh, forgot where it was. But I started to get into some, uh, I, 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 the relationship with this, this person wasn't working, and I started to uh, feel deeply, deeply dislocated, just very disoriented mm. in terms of who I was, what I what I was on the earth for, etc. And I found the Bible and I started reading it. It was actually through reading scripture that I encountered Christ. And I, I have to tell you, Jason, if you've had no exposure to church, no exposure to scripture, nothing in, in your past, you're 21 and the first time you meet this character called Jesus is through the pages of scripture it is startling. It is, it's mm. like an ambush. It's, it's, I'm kind of jealous for that experience as I hear you <laughs> describe it because mine, for better or for worse, is right. I, had a, I had all the preconceived ideas of Sunday school sanitized and all and the moralism of it informing my reading. Right. And, and so it's just so interesting for me to hear about that experience well, and, and, for you. And there's a part of me that's, that, that's envious of that because... Mm. Um, I mean, there's some very dark episodes in, in my life because uh, growing up in this non-religious family until my mm. mom had this encounter with Christ and uh, a father who was an alcoholic, et cetera. So there's a part of me that sort of longs for that childhood yeah. that seems to me a bit idyllic. However, I, I think the you know the, what's how it served me in ministry, but, but especially in life is just, Scripture is so alive to me. It's still hmm. so deeply alive. For almost 40 years later, the Scriptures are living things. And I can open, especially the, the Gospels where I started, and read Christ speaking, moving through the thing. And it is so vivid to me. He is so real to me through that. And I feel that, you know, that there's that old, beautiful, spiritual uh, sometimes it makes me tremble, tremble, tremble. <laughs> That's what would happen to me when I was uh, first encountered Christ through the Scripture. And still, I, mm. I can I can be reading the Bible and I feel this deep, holy awe in the in the presence of Christ, especially. And so it was astounding. And then when I uh, I, I got into pastoring, it's, it's sort of by fluke. So I was only had been a Christian about eight years and looking for other kinds of work. I was always interested in writing and literature, so I wanted to do that. And uh, a church phoned up out of the blue, this church in Vernon, and asked if I would be the youth pastor. And it was a, that was a funny backstory. Somebody had died and left some money, and but they tied strings to, to the money. And the biggest portion was for, for a building expansion that the church really wanted but they had to use all of the money as designated if they're going to get any of it. And 24,000 was designated for a youth pastor. <laughs> and the church had no vision for a youth pastor. They weren't going to throw another cent into that pot. So my moving costs, all my benefits, everything else had to come out of that 24,000. And they phoned me up. Uh, I had met this pastor a couple of times. And would I come and do this? And I honestly had no higher motivation than I needed a job. Hmm. And so I said yes on in the back of my mind. They've only got money for a year. They were very explicit about that, and I had no intention of staying beyond the year. I just was going to use that year to work out what I was really going to do. And I, I obviously, I ended up staying longer <laughs> and soon after became the senior minister there and then went on to Duncan and, and was senior pastor there for 18. But the, the thing I want to say about the Scripture scriptures is that because I didn't have any background in the church, I did take a, a master's degree from Regent College, so, but none of that was in pastoral leadership. It was theology and weird things and, you know, stuff with Lauren Wilkinson, you know, and literature. <laughs> so, uh, so I didn't have really any preparation for, for doing what y'all do. But what I had is, is this love for the Word of God and this love mm. for uh, soaking in it and trying to I mean, my brain was so formed by the world and, and the scriptures were 
I, I could feel them reordering how I wow. thought and saw. I could, I could, it was like, it's almost visceral and physical. Uh, sh- the shifts. When I read about Paul's, you know, blindness uh, being removed like scales, I, 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 I actually felt that happening with mm. me, Jason. And so I had this scriptures that I thought, indeed, I took the Baptist little uh, creedal statement about the scriptures that they're, um, they're sufficient for for uh, all life and faith, and so I I would come up to a situation in the church and I hadn't a clue, in terms right. of any kind of training. But I would find I'd find well, what does the scripture have to say about this? Mm. And it's extraordinary how much the scripture speaks to circumstances that uh, people in the church or pastors are going through all the time. Um, and obviously, you know what, we want to bring good hermeneutic to and all that sort of stuff, but it is extraordinary, and it's still my default. When I go in to teach a class now, uh, no matter what the topic is, my very first thing is to go and plunder the scriptures to find out mm. what does the scripture have to say about this, not just theologically, but how we, we would live it out. Hmm. Mark, I wonder if you have any advice for someone like myself or someone listening who feels at times like you've lost the wonder around scripture or the sense of it being alive. How do we recultivate that? Yeah. Paul Ricoeur, who, who's uh, often um, cited is a Christian man, but studied in the area of, of uh, literary theory, but uh, really has been an enormous influence on, 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 on hermeneutics and especially Christian hermeneutics recurse is that you, you should try to attain to the what he calls the second naivety and so that's where obviously we've heard this you know scriptures the prodigal son story or whatever it happens to be we've 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 heard it from read it preach sermons on it but what if we were to approach that with a second naivety that we we uh, tried to actually step out of all of that as uh, those presuppositions that have been shaped in us over a long exposure. And we tried to encounter this as though we're hearing it for the first time. Again, Hmm. I had the advantage at 21 of encountering every single scripture as though for the first time, because it was the first time. Um, But I still try to get into that second naivety. Now I've spent a lifetime writing about scripture, preaching about scripture, teaching about scripture. But when I read a text, I still try to move into that place where Whatever I think I know about this, I step outside of it while I encounter that text. Hmm. And uh, it and for me, that actually, new things, God will, will break new light from that particular scripture, whatever it happens hmm. to be. When in your journey um, did you find, you began to explore, like one of the things I've really appreciated about your writing is, and I don't know if you'd consider yourself like a spiritual formation author, but I just feel like... I read like Ruth Haley Barton or Richard Foster and your name, interestingly, is, is in that catalog with me just because of the way you've un- opened up spiritual disciplines and a way of living, of connectedness uh, with God. The idea of, of spiritual formation, when did that come up in your journey, you know? And and yeah, I'm just curious how that became kind of a passion for you to articulate those things. Yeah, I didn't even remember hearing that word spiritual formation until probably about 10 years ago, I'm embarrassed to say. Uh, I was pursuing... Um, I th- really, when I look at, at my early books and I was less conscious of what I was doing, <laughs> I was pursuing this deep connection between scripture and life. So I guess that's mm. spiritual formation. But because it always mattered to me what, how scriptures were guiding us in life and faith, and not in some moralistic way, not in some overly didactic way, but this, this companionable way, this, this friend along the way this wise ancient friend that would walk with us. And so that had been my experience. So really I was trying to render that into uh, into my pastoral work. So when I got up to preach, I was thinking about the not only what does this text say, but what does it do? Hmm. Later I found out Thomas Long. That's kind of this whole approach to, to uh, methodology of preaching. And a lot of others, Fred Craddock and uh, Will Willimon, said was, uh, David Buttrick, an old uh, master of the of the pulpit. They were all talking about that. But I, when I even when at Regent, all I remember is we're doing exegetical work around what does the text say, so that we could 
we could replicate what it's saying. And what I was experienced from the scriptures themselves is that they're trying to do something. Our friend Daryl Johnson would say the same thing. They're, they're, they're messing with you. Hmm. These things are, you know, Daryl famously says, preaching is, expository teaching or expositional preaching is uh, uh, letting the text say and do what only the text can say and do. Mm-hmm. But it's that do thing that I, I honestly think a lot of preaching that I, I hear and a lot that I've done was too interested or too preoccupied with what does it say so we're we're digging we're, we're treating the pulpit like it's like it's a history you know a lectern in a history class rather than saying every scripture is trying to mess with you hmm. it's, it's trying to get inside of you it's trying to rearrange that that what i described that kind of almost re-architecting hmm. who you are and how you think and 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 the the very core of stuff, your identity, your deepest values. And the, it's scripture that I experienced that through. And so I I think my early writing was just trying to render that into prose form. Now I'm a little more wised up to it. <laughs> so I'm a little more, you know, and maybe that makes it weaker. I don't know where I'm, I'm sort of <laughs> uh, trying to, you know, I'm not doing it as intuitively. I, there's a sort of a a strategy and an intention to it now. But that would be, you know, if I if I said what is if you ask me what is the theme of all your books, it's uh the God with whom we have to do. Hmm. Which is uh King James rendering of Hebrews four, I think it's thirteen, the God with whom we have to do. And that text is explicitly connected with the Word of God being like a double edged sword dividing hmm. bone and marrow. The God wow. with whom we have to do. Um, there's been, I think, a really kind of healthy resurgence. I know these things go in cycles in the church around, um, like a a guy who a lot of listeners of the podcast would love is John Mark Comer. He wrote a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which is, I mm. think, a Dallas Willard quote. Right. Or he was quoting, um, or quoting, quoting Willard. William yeah. Willard. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> And uh, so, and and John Mark would say, "Hey, I'm just channeling Orberg, who's channeling Willard, who's you know whatever." So these things come in cycles. But my first exposure to this idea of like a slowed down spirituality was reading the rest of God. And mm. uh, I'm trying to remember what year was that published? Was that 2006? two thousand six? I think so. I think it was two thousand six. Yeah. So I was just graduated from high school, and I think I might maybe I read it in 07. So I'm in my second year of university at SFU, and I'm just starting to like serve Jesus on the weekend. So like I'm studying it business thinking I'm going to go into business, but I'm preaching on the weekends. I'm doing these things. And I read this book and you're describing things like burnout and different things like that. And it's a beautiful book. And I was just so compelled by it and I loved it. And it's like, almost like I hadn't been through burnout, man. I wasn't struggling. (laughs) I wasn't tired, but I connected with it and it laid this foundation in my heart, uh, for like a language. And then I remember, um, you know, reading, uh, you know, other, other books by you and you're just talking about like uh, walking with God and being in the community. And it was a vision of a pastoral picture for me that was being shaped and then a walking with Jesus that I just never thought about, to be honest. It wasn't, for me, prayer was intercession. It was great. Like I was on fire coming out of high school, mm. praying for my friends that didn't know Jesus and God was doing great things to the word. But it was untethered by, untethered from like a slowed down, simplifying. The only other book that I had read was Intimacy with the Almighty by Charles Swindoll, this tiny little book booklet. Anyways, it's just so interesting how important that book played in my life because now at 33 in ministry, like if I'm honest with you right now, I, I'm, I'm waking up at 4 a.m. some mornings because I've got so much in my mind trying to pass in the pandemic. And I, and, and I have this toolkit for like, Jay, like this is your body telling you, you got to slow down and you know, all these things. So I'm, I'm interacting with these ideas, but really it was that, that really foundational beginning of that conversation was with you from a distance to that book. Jason, so I'm thank so you glad. For that. Yeah. Oh, you're so welcome. And you describe it so beautifully. Um, I, 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 I've kind of fall, fallen a bit under the spell of your description. So thank you. <laughs> I, I, um, I, I'm so glad you actually brought this up because now that I teach in a seminary, I realize that probably the, 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 the primary duty I have to students, and so this will speak to many of the young leaders that are listening to this podcast, 
you can go. Uh, I, I have never seen a generation more more gifted than than you. <laughs> like, I don't know what that is. If if you've, you've just kind of evolved to a higher state of of of, of you know uberness, brightness, awesomeness, or something. But I have not met a more gifted, um, extraordinarily uh, skilled, uh, passionate generation than than what you represent, Jason. So I don't. I feel coming to the classroom. I'm 60 years old. That there's there's certain things that I'm just being left in the dust on. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that I would I would I, I'm saying more and more and with more and more sense of of urgency is that. If you don't lay that foundation early, you will burn out. Hmm. If you don't get that foundation of intimacy with God, of slowing down, of not of of refusing to de- derive your worth, your value, your purpose from your gifting and your ambition and your accomplishment, you have to actually steadfastly refuse that. And, and the earlier you refuse it, the better, hmm. because. Right now, you, Jason, and your generation are so gifted, um, and you've got so much energy in the tank. Man, I want to nap every day for an hour. I really do. I just, you know, like, and so, so all the sort of limitations that I'm facing at this point. But I, it took me too long in my life to figure out what you just said. You, you figured out early, and I'm, I'm grateful. Well, I'm at war with it. I'm at war with it because you laid a foundation. It really did save me. Like it saved me because essentially I started seeing warning signs. It's like, it's like somehow when I was reading it and for those that don't know to call it a book about Sabbath would be not saying enough about it, but it's a book about Sabbath, about rest. And, um, this is the rest of God. And, um, you painted this picture of like Jesus not being in a hurry. And like, I wanted, it was, yeah, it's amazing. Picture. Thank you. I, and my, I have a new book. I'm not here to promote my books called God Walk. And if I, yeah. if I, if I, if I have any sense that there's a sequel to to Rest of God, it would be God Walk because hmm. it's a similar kind of themed around. Why don't you notice stuff? Why don't you notice the flowers? Why don't you notice the grass? Why don't you slow down? Why don't you hear God? Why don't you move at the speed of your soul? But I mean, I think that you know, I, looking back all these years later on Rest of God, I sort of see it as a poem to Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's it's prose, but there's, uh, I, I, as you know, I, I I tried to write it in a way that was more evocative and um, tried to sort of in the language itself and the rhythms of the language to capture the beauty of this gift of Sabbath. Uh, but. but but partly because I wanted, uh, and I'm so grateful to, to hear how that book had an impact on you, because I really did want for the reader, whatever the age, to be a sense of the welcome that hmm. Sabbath, God th- through this gift of Sabbath was was providing. Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden. And so again, I would reinforce with especially your younger leaders. I'm sure there's a few older leaders listening to this could could probably hear this and be reminded of it. That that really, uh, there comes a day when nobody's phoning you to come, you know, play on their worship team or preach at their webinar, you know, preach at their their conference or whatnot. Um, and they're, you're not being uh, you're not being hailed for your accomplishments, the church you built or the books you wrote. Uh, and it'll be a very, very lonely existence if you predicated your sense of who you are on all of that. Hmm. Uh, what actually will make for a rich old age is that you've gone into this uh, intimacy with, with Christ and you've nurtured that and fostered that all the days of your life. And I can hardly think of a discipline outside of the nuns you name, the, the life of prayer and the life of scripture. Aside from those, I think the number one thing that actually nurtures and fosters that union with God is Sabbath. Hmm. Hmm. Because we I, start um, to live out of it. <laughs> you know, you start to live out of a place of rest. Yeah. And I felt like one of the things in the book about Sabbath that you did was you like, you, you broaden the vision of Sabbath, this like life, and G- Jesus is the fulfillment of Sabbath, but a life that's slowed down. But then even now, it's like the practical application of maybe a 24-hour rhythm in your week yeah. can be the gateway into that. And that's sort of just part of that lingering picture. And, you know, I know you're not pushing your books, and I appreciate saying that, but also even Spiritual Rhythm was another sort of um, book that probably I didn't understand when I was reading 
but it laid a foundation for me and uh, about grieving, about pain, about, mm. and also about um, being a pastor. And I'd love to chat about it because it just it gave me a window into uh, walking with the pain of the community around you. And I, I'd love to chat around um, a conversation with you if, if we have time around uh, indigenous issues. But the first time I kind of thought about you is that because you were a pastor in Duncan and you were listening to the community around you and saying, this is part of the community around yeah. me. And so talk to me a bit about your time in pastoral ministry and just understanding your role as a pastor and being attuned to the world around you and how that's shaped maybe how you're even teaching people today. Oh, that you asked that so well. Spiritual Rhythm was a book that, that uh, probably my most personal because it came out of this profound grief of losing a colleague and a dear friend. And I had never really experienced grief at that level, uh, even though I'd lost my dad prior to that. But um, for some reason, this hit me, maybe season of life in a way that um, I I suddenly felt the the abyss of sorrow. And partly I was also a a female pastor and it was my wife's best friend. Mm -hmm. And so we were both going through the deep, deep waters. And for the first time in pastoral ministry, uh, every other crisis in pastoral ministry, everybody's death, I was able to lead with with sort of clarity of of purpose and 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 I wasn't caught up in the crisis. This is the first time not only was I caught up in the crisis but the church moved beyond even though she was their pastor as well but they moved beyond much faster than my wife and I were able to. Hmm. And what happened in short is I became a better pastor after I nearly lost my mind. Um, and, and at some point, I, I felt I was going to lose my faith. But I began to understand pain in a way I had not before. It was like the difference between C.S. Lewis when he wrote The Problem of Pain. He's an Oxford dawn, waxing eloquent about, you know, how God uses pain to wake it, whatever. It, it, read that if you ever read that in, in companionship with a grief observed after he mm. loses his wife, Joy Gresham. Uh, or Joy Davidson, it's a whole different, that's a howl of agony. (laughs) And those things have to be read together. Well, in a sense, um, my grief observed was was that season. But it made me a better pastor because I realized at any given time, probably a third of our congregation is going through something really wrenching. And I didn't have uh, sensitivity and I didn't have language for it before. And when Mm. I started to have sensitivity and language, I I was just, I was better. I was better in terms of being a pastor. Before I was a decent leader, I was not a bad communicator, but I wasn't really a good pastor. So this did that. So so what emerged out of that, as you said, is, is now then an awakening to the community. And it was right at that time that I began to realize we were right next door to a very uh, significant First Nations community called the Cowichan people. And I'd been already in that town eight or so years and had basically ignored the Cowichan people. And I uh, began to be open to the... uh, If you're going to open your heart to Indigenous people, you're also going to open your heart to heartbreak. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably true of all people. But uh, for, for us, it's been a, a much sort of more searing or piercing experience when we walk with Indigenous f- um, friends. And so, uh, anyhow, out of that sort of awakening of uh, some pastoral sense that I didn't really have before, I began to sort of uh, care deeply about, about the Cowichan people. And bumbled my way in. Oh my goodness! I mean, it was a gong show of me getting it ninety percent wrong for every you know ten percent I got right. But slowly, slowly, we began to actually build a significant relationship. But at, to this day, it's been now nearly eight years I've been gone. That relationship um, not only continues, but it's gone much deeper than than mm. I had taken it. Uh, between that church and Duncan and the Cowichan people, so um, that that kind of uh, yeah that that was a whole other piece of kind of I guess the um, taking this this renewal or this growth as a pastor into uh, caring about the community. It wasn't only the indigenous community. We we started to care deeply about. There's a huge flood 
a few years later, 2010, in um, Duncan, it was a massive flood that, that flooded out large portions of the town. And our church uh, really got involved in a very, very practical and significant mm-hmm. rebuilding homes and things like that. And so, but I, I think a lot of that was, was maybe uh, not so much that I was the author and perfecter of that, but that it, it was in some ways I had been freshly awakened to the pain of others. And, mm. and so that that maybe uh, was helpful for the church and gave them freedom to kind of uh, start walking and, and ministering in those areas. Mm. I... um. I think I'm too afraid sometimes to bumble into something and get something 90% wrong that I don't go after things I feel convicted to go after. <laughs> you know, T.K. Uh, Chesterton, who has such zingers, but he said, uh, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. I love that. That was, I didn't, I, he is, he does have a way of doing that where I'm like, I needed that line. Why haven't I totally. had that for the last decade? <laughs> right. But that's exactly how I feel specifically around the particular issue we're talking about with indigenous yeah. people is I don't even know how to talk about it, bro, yeah. because I f- I'm so afraid of getting it wrong. And I'm just like, I'm at this moment in my journey. And I even feel embarrassing this publicly because I know it holds me accountable, but I'm actively trying to listen and learn. I'm in the listening and learn phase. I'm a pastor in Vancouver. I'm trying to listen to the city. And here's what I do know that there's a disproportionate amount of women on the downtown east side that come from indigenous people. I can't deny it statistically. You see it. Also, there's beauty and so much part of our story that I have to acknowledge and give tribute to, and I can't, and it's, and I'm trying to find my way through it, but I'm afraid to get it wrong. And so I just appreciate you saying you bumbled into it because I feel like I'm I'm afraid of getting it 90% wrong. What was GK's line again? uh, Anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. Yeah, I got to start doing this poorly. Yeah, that's kind of my motto. And and honestly, there's no way, especially on on a church or a Christian engaging with the indigenous community roundabout, whether it's the these doubly displaced women down on the east side, they're not in their their communities that they were uh, were, were among among their clan, among their people. But they're never going to really be embraced and uh, welcomed into Vancouver community. Um, so, so an urban native person is doubly displaced. And so there's no way to actually engage that without getting a lot of it wrong, of mm-hmm. saying the wrong things, doing the wrong things, um, having the wrong motives. I think it's one of those issues, and it would be similar with working uh, virtually with anybody that we perceive as sort of on a margin from, you know, what what is seen to be mainstream society. Uh, whether we understand that economically or culturally or whatever, anytime we sort of uh, venture out of that world that maybe we're familiar with into a world that is uh, unknown and strange and foreign and maybe dangerous, feels dangerous to us, I don't think there's any way of doing it without um, just bumbling away for a while and learning as we go. But but the, the number one thing that I have found along the way is you've got to go with deep, deep humility. Hmm. That if uh, the, the one thing that will get you in trouble really fast is uh, an arrogance or hubris that you really are the answer to whatever hmm. ails humanity. Um, you've got to get down. And a good movie to watch, and it's not around... Uh, indigenous communities, but it's a, a movie about 10 years old now called The Soloist hmm. with um, uh, Robert Downey Jr. It's based on a, a true events, as it's just, you know, we call movies now. Um, Jamie Foxx plays a homeless man, and uh, Robert Downey Jr. is a newspaper reporter looking for a copy. He just needs a story. Hmm. And so there's this story of this Jamie Foxx, formerly a concert level cellist who's now living, um, you know, under the overpass. And that seems like an interesting story. What happens is a friendship emerges. But if there's a a movie that gets uh, in a Hollywood-esque way at the complexity of the issues around um, anyone anyone sort of living on the margins of of what we consider mainstream society, that's a great movie to, to sort of begin a conversation and realize as that movie just portrays, there's no way in but 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 stumbling. 
Hmm. If you were to go back and like coach younger Mark, taking steps as just building friendship, like I always know the first step is listening well, building actual relationships, you know, not come with a plan. Um, but looking back as you were kind of entering in that way, any sort of reflections that you'd want to pass on to a younger you or to me as I try to go, okay, I really want to understand my city. I want to build relationships yeah. and actually help uh, any sort of guiding thoughts or principles. And even if you want to be specific about the issue we're talking about. Yeah, it's really fun. Like our, our, my wife and I go to a church on one of the uh, indigenous communities here in Calgary. And um, there's a couple of, of uh, young men from Ambrose who are helping out with some elements of it. And they're wonderful. They're amazing. And I wish I was them. I wish I'd done it the way, uh, you know, they're doing it. And partly they've got some people like my wife and I to help kind of uh, navigate that with them. But what I'm seeing and what I would what I say to them and what I say to any young listener is that, that these men are marked out by that deep humility. They're so teachable. Hmm. And yet they're curious, but curious not in an intrusive way. And this is one thing, especially in indigenous folks, that uh, if you start asking too many questions too quickly, for most indigenous people, that's going to look like an invasion. Hmm. Um, so you f- really do build the relationship, the friendship, um, and and to the point where where once there's that level of trust, in my experience, most indigenous people then will begin to share their story without a whole bunch of prying or prodding. But the prying and prodding, I mean, I think for anybody that's seen as intrusive. But there's a there's a way that uh, in way in in which kind of our learning or training or cultural shaping for 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 you know white folk growing up in the suburbs of Vancouver or something, we're used to kind of people kind of asking these more personal or directed questions. So that normally doesn't work. So what I'm watching is these young men come in really humble, uh, but not, they're, they're not, um, they're not, they don't have hero. They don't have any kind of hero complex or messianic Mm. complex. They're just really, uh, sit with people, enjoy a meal with people, um, laugh. The funniest people I know are, are, are indigenous people. It's just uproariously funny. But you, you usually have to sort of get past the place where, um, you know, the, 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 you pass the awkwardness of the, of the relationship. And then uh, I've, I'm watching these young men as, as uh, sometimes people three times their age are beginning to share their story with hmm. them. And... Um, and and then what what marks them out is not in is in, intrusive questioning but a curiosity. Well, what was that like? Hmm. And it's it's marvelous because it's for one of these young men. He's only been on the ground with us about a little under three months, and already um, people are bringing him. Well, make sure you know so and so gets this gift for Christmas. <laughs> Um, so there's this, this sense that he's being deeply embraced by this uh, many people in this community. And I think that, that those are the, the touchstones or these qualities of humility, uh, gentle curiosity, willing to be with people over over a meal, etc. Mm. I, I mean, I think the question is, how do you even begin a, a relationship like that? And honestly, you probably need to know somebody who's already on the inside that can invite you in. Hmm. Um, so it wouldn't really work just to sort of um, drive into the, the yeah. local <laughs> reserve or, um, uh, you know, try to kind of begin that, that thing without somebody kind of uh, opening the door for you. Mm-hmm. But more and more people are doing that. Um, and once, I, I, my very first Indigenous friend, Tal James, who is still a very dear friend, uh, he said to me when when I started this journey twenty or so years ago, Mark, if you have no uh, native friends, you have no native friends. If you have one, you have fifty. Hmm. And that's proved true. That uh, once you've established a trusting and a genuine friendship with one a person from a a community roundabout, then it kind of uh, makes you at least you know, trustworthy or worthy of kind of, um, maybe this person's okay. Maybe this person's safe. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, can you tell me a bit about the next chapter 
for you and your wife and what's ahead? Because there's a shift coming up and yeah, there's yeah. exciting project coming in 2021, and which is an interesting year to launch anything. Um, <laughs> but I'd love to hear about it. Tell me about yeah. it. Thanks. Thanks so much, Jason. Yeah, I uh, we just uh, this in the last couple of days we started pushing out a letter to uh, friends and, and potential supporters, both in prayer and finances. But my wife and I are—I've got special permission from Ambrose to take eight months next, begin next September, and we're moving to. I'm, I'm going to uh, leave it on name because. Um, uh, the nature of the community is we want to kind of sort of protect some identity stuff, but we're going to uh, move to one of the islands um, in BC, and we're going to work with an established ministry to um, to build a, a, a ministry that uh, to work with Indigenous women, um, uh, and it's going to be a journey of of mutual healing so it'll be a learning journey for my wife and I but also through these women um, and also some equipping some equipping mm-hmm. around some uh, life skills job skills um, um, educational skills and whatnot so we're working closely with this this ministry to kind of deliver on all these points and then also it'll be uh, customized to each woman as she identifies some goals that she has in the in the time that she's going to be there uh, whether it's uh, you know starting college or finishing college or or some educational piece or uh, working through some heart stuff or whatever, um, we've we've uh, spent a couple of years in conversation with people, including many many of our indigenous friends, because we don't want this to be again white white people to the rescue sort of thing, mm-hmm. and and really uh, worked through what the program would look like, uh, how we would go about starting this up. So this this will launch, um, uh, the, the, the thing will actually sort of be up and running in September. We're, we're launching it now in terms of starting to build a base of support for it. And uh, it'll be an eight-month experiment. Again, my, my university is allowing me to retain my position my job and and do this uh, at a distance and uh, fly in for some courses and whatnot but we really see this as a pilot that mm. if if this succeeds we'll uh, start to explore what this could look like in other other communities throughout canada mm. it's exciting um watching with great interest and um i love the spirit of the experiment and the mutual learning can I ask you a question? This is, I don't know, you might, we might even have to delete this because it's, it's such an unfair question for someone that's employed by a seminary. But do seminaries still work for raising up pastors? Like, is it, how are you making sense of it? Because you're a pastor, you've been in the field, and obvi- like, I'm not as cynical as I might sound by the question, but I'm, I'm really deeply thinking about what does it look like to prepare pastors to lead churches in Canada. And I'm just curious your reflections. You're at Ambrose, you're investing your time. Obviously, it's a huge piece of the puzzle, but I just love to know your reflections on developing leaders for effective pastoral work in the church. That's an excellent question, Jason. And I mean, I went to, my my initial resistance even going to Ambrose was, would, would be uh, around those issues. Is this, is this still the way we prepare uh, young women and men for uh, whatever, for the lack of a better term, vocational ministry. And I would say, yes, it is, but with this proviso that I think more than ever the church has to work really w- closely and collaboratively with the mm. local church. Uh, I'm astonished in my lifetime, and especially in the last 10 or 15 years, what local churches have done in terms of undertaking the training formation and preparation of people within their midst for um, a a fuller load of of um, ministry, including things like preaching and and top um, roles of leadership. Where I would say the seminary can do things that the church can't is there's certain pieces uh, like you know, getting the languages. Um, a lot of the, the a lot of the stuff around um, understanding the history of the church, not to understand it so much academically, but every problem you've ever faced, Jason, as a pastor, the church has faced before. Mm. And but you you know you don't want to have to try to do that homework when you're in the grip of the crisis. 
you, you want to have a sense of um, the the this sort of deep connectivity, the, this sort of uh, this this long history that you have with the church throughout the ages, and that this heresy that just happened to have a new kind of uh, decked out in new clothing is something the church has wrestled with at this point, at this point, at this point. Uh, similar in terms of your theological training, you, you, there's certain things you don't want to be piecing together hmm. while you're in the midst of uh, some some crisis or something erupting within the the board or within the church or some kind of you, you know something sort of flying at you from 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 a something left like field. a pandemic even for example. Absolutely. So it's not <laughs> like well, I mean, the church has actually done stuff. I mean, you think about the church in Alexandria yes. through the plagues, right? And it's not the first time we've had plagues. There's been many. Virtually every century has a significant plague, and so yeah. the church or has, massive uh, technological shifts. Yeah, the church yeah, has I mean, been through it before. Tons. So it's not like this is that, but it's it's. There's enough that we can glean from these moments, both theologically and historically, hmm. that are that we don't have to kind of blunder our way through all of it. And so I would say that that, that a seminary is still the best place to deliver that sort of thing. But I, uh, were, uh, when I got to Ambrose, I was a little bit uh, astonished how little we were connected with local churches. Hmm. And so I, uh, because of having at that point come freshly out of the pastoral ministry. And I have a very good relationship with both the president at Ambrose and, and with the theological dean. And so I asked for permission if I could begin to kind of build a, a bridge to f- fill that gap. And so we do um, continue in education things that come out of conversations with church leaders about mm. what would actually, what do you need here? <laughs> Um, and what? How could we take some of the best people we have and deliver in a very affordable, accessible, time, uh, you know, consumable uh, format? Something that you're going to walk out. You can bring your team to it, and you'll walk out the door in three and a half hours, and you'll be able to think differently mm-hmm. or do ministry differently. So. That's where uh, I think that the church need, or the seminary needs to go is is just tighter, more collaborative, more mutually um, enhancing and, and and trusting relationship between mm-hmm. local churches. So one of the things I do, uh, I, I meet on a routine basis. It, hardly a week goes by where I haven't probably met. Now it's by Zoom, but uh, uh, just to confess, yesterday I went for an eight and five point five kilometer with a, a, a pastor in town. We went for a walk, and I, uh, five to six pastors a week, I try to get with in some form or another to kind of myself understand what's happening for you right Hmm. now. What does it look like on the ground? Hmm. I'm forgetting. (laughs) So they're my teachers as much as the other way around. But I think it really is mutual. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for doing that. And and the reason I say thanks is because... My hypothesis, and my opinion doesn't matter. No one listens to this for my opinion, but it's late enough in the day. I'm a little bit tired, so I'm just going to riff anyways. Sure, go. Is, is there's when the gap where the, the academic or the institution is divorced from what's actually happened in the local church, we're all losing. We're all missing out. But when, when it's working together and there's listening, it's like we need, like, listen, Mark, I need guys like you that, or institutions that can say, hey, we'll, we'll put some homework in. We'll pull the best yeah. minds together. We'll do some research. And what questions are you asking? Because I don't, I, I don't have time to maybe think through addiction and the statistics and what's going on and then and pastorally think it through. But maybe, and I just love that you're listening and I just honor you guys for that. And I just know that the plight of a local pastor in most days is just trying to get by, just trying to make it to Sunday. And then when, when sometimes maybe an institution or someone comes by, offers another thing, and it's like, it's out of touch. It can almost just feel like, listen, man, I'm just trying to make it through to Sunday, <laughs> you know? Totally. And uh, I'd love to know what you're hearing. Like, what are you hearing in these conversations? What are pastors saying? Yeah. I mean, one thing I, 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 I noticed in my conversations is the first wave of the pandemic uh, tended to generate innovation. The second wave is generating exhaustion. Hmm. Uh, that's a generalized comment because in yeah. some in some specific instances... Uh, the first wave was let's just do our show online and let's just kind of do you know a, a digital version of what we're already doing. And, and in some instances, the second wave is creating that innovation now. 
but I, 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 the frustration level, the exhaustion level, the I'm ready to throw in the towel kind of thinking go, going on with uh, really gifted and, and pastors that I have so much admiration and it's scary to me. Uh, as you know, our friend Daryl wrote a piece that has had a, already uh, just a week or two ago and already a huge impact, Don't Quit. Hmm. Uh, but he's writing to a mood and a, 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 a malaise that's out there. I have, uh, I'm walking with a pastor tomorrow who, in the middle of the pandemic, uh, decided this was a moment to, to move on from his church mm. after 23 years. Now, it was a good leaving. There was no crisis or scandal or anything like that. But I think there's just this, this weariness and... Yeah. So what all I'm saying, I mean, if I have any wisdom for it, and honestly, I, I'm more listening, I really am, more than I'm trying to sort of speak into that, because I have no idea how to lead in a pandemic. I didn't have to do it. But what I would urge is the things that we've already talked about, is maybe the gift of this is the things, this this if you've neglected in any way this deep life of, of intimacy with God, this formation of the inmost parts, hmm. this establishing and rooting your identity on the love of God, not on your awesomeness. Be awesome. Please please go and be awesome because we're all dazzled. You know, like us old guys are amazed <laughs> and we love listening to you preach and we love listening to you lead. We're like, how come when we were young, we didn't have musicians like you? We had these old stodgy like how why you know we feel cheated um so so be awesome we love you being awesome but we also uh yearn for you to mm. uh to, to that come out of this growing depth and freedom and this joy in the presence enjoying enjoying the company of god mm. and so i would really really urge uh that almost we're all on a bit of a sabbatical. I know uh, many, many pastors are working harder and stressing more than they ever have and trying to manage all these moving pieces that they never even thought about before. But there's also, you're not commuting like you used to. Um, You're not having to go across town to meet somebody at restaurants (laughs) and stuff. So you can redeem some of that time Mm -hmm. and, and start to repurpose it for this deeper life in Christ. Uh, I'm a big advocate, like my my most recent book is God Walk is on walking. If you don't mm. have a discipline of walking and you have the capacity, the physical ability to walk, please start walking. Mm. Uh, stuff happens in through us when we walk that doesn't happen otherwise. And it's one of the reasons I think that the Apostle Paul uses, and, and John, uh, Apostle John in particular, use walking, I don't think just as their primary metaphor for the spiritual life. I think they actually mean it in, in part literally. Hmm. Walk out your faith, walk in the light, walk in truth. <laughs> I think there's a real physical hmm. component to this. So I would I would say start to re, re, repurpose that time uh, as you know, you know Ignatian, Ignatius of Loyola, the, the desolation, consolation, the examine is a really great practice always, but certainly now, and thinking through uh, what is making me feel desolate right now, what's mm-hmm. making me feel, you know, what's giving consolation, joy. And then if can you shape your day and your week around that you... Um, that you're, the, the things of desolation, you can minimize them. The things of consolation, you can heighten them. And not the false consolation like drinking too much wine or anything, but just uh, the things that are really, really, uh, you know, helping you experience God. And one of the things Ignatius would say is that don't make a big decision if you can help it in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> don't quit. Just don't wait, quit. Wait yeah. a little longer. <laughs> Well, Mark, I'm just so grateful for your time. Um, I would love it if you'd be up for coming and chatting again because there's lots of things I'd like to dig into, but I do appreciate your time so much. Jason, likewise. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us today. If you're wanting to connect at all with Mark's past work or what he's got coming up, head to our blog at ccln.ca slash blog for more information. Now, before I share about next week's super special episode, I want to thank Compassion Canada for partnering with us to make this episode possible. 
As much as COVID has challenged our usual ways of leading and doing ministry in Canada, its impact has been immense for churches serving in communities affected by poverty in ways we're only starting to understand. Our team at CCLN is excited about the chance to partner with Compassion Canada, a ministry that is wholeheartedly committed to moving the local church to be the hands and feet of Jesus around the world. Now, Compassion is an exciting proposal for you. On Tuesday, February 9th, Compassion is inviting Canadian pastors to an hour with Compassion International's president and CEO, Jimmy Mulatto, to hear about how COVID has affected the global church and how Compassion is working hard to stand with local churches around the world. If you're curious about what Compassion is about and what it could look like for your church to partner with them, you can learn more and register for an hour with Jimmy Mulatto at ccln.ca slash compassion. Okay, next week we have a very special interview for you. Alpha Canada recently ran a webinar for pastors called Don't Give Up. It was just under an hour of a conversation between Shayla Visser, director of Alpha Canada, and some veteran voices you might recognize. Charles Price, Daryl Johnson, and Laurel Buckingham. And together, these three have over 140 years of ministry experience. If you missed the webinar or you want to hear it again, you can find it here next week. Well, thanks again for tuning in, and we hope you'll be with us again in a week's time. See you then.